0: Hello and welcome to the Loving Legacy podcast, episode 25. Can't believe we've got to a quarter of a century already. This time, it's a good one. It's a long one too. I'm speaking to Jacob LaForge all about value stream mapping, continuous delivery and products as a platform or platform as a product. Which way around is it? Interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Let's crack on. Thanks for joining me today, Jacob. Maybe you can introduce yourself and tell me who you are and who you work for and what you do.
1: Yeah, so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So my name is Jacob. I'm based close to Helsinki in Finland. And uh, yeah, I come from a technical background, but I, I was involved in founding a small consultancy where we practice things like CICD and cloud architecture and try and couple those two together to help software teams deliver good software. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: Nice. And how long has the company been going for?
1: Yeah, we, we, we started in 2017, or at least that's when you know, when we gave it a name and hired our first employee. And it was more than just, <laughs> just me running around doing my own thing. Growth and scale was never the, like, the real goal. It was more about building a nice place to, to work and be and have, have a fun time doing it. So, um,
0: and how did you kind of transition to that idea that I want to start something?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, so I was I was working for um, another company who were who were resellers of um, testing tools. So we were reselling static analysis and, and unit testing tools. There was other stuff too, but those were the two primary things, mainly for C and C++ in the embedded space. Um, and they yeah they they were resellers, so they didn't own the tools. Other companies developed the the, the, the products, the tools, and then we were we were selling them and, and doing. You know, customer support and uh, also into implementation, integration, and these sorts of things for getting it up and running. So that was when I entered the the the, the industry and CI was you know just taking off. So uh, people were looking at tools like um, like Cruise Control and so on, and then suddenly the new kid on the block Jenkins appeared. Uh, and when and was one this time wise, kind
0: of two thousand and
1: eleven. 2012 ish. So yeah, I got Jenkins plonked on my desk, like, <laughs> learn this because people are using it. Yeah, I got involved in writing plugins and such for that. And, and basically helping teams to implement static analysis and unit testing as, as, as part of CI as well. And um, together with my brother, we, we created a franchisee of that business. So the same company name, and we started a business in the Nordic which we did for a few years, it was it was really fun and, and, and good. But more and more, I felt like I, I didn't want to be involved in selling tools, I wanted to just be helping people implementing these tools. Yeah. And we, we came across, uh, doing our work, a company called Brachma, who were based in Denmark, also had an office in, in Sweden and Norway. So um, uh, that, that, that kind of like sparked the idea that like, okay, so I could be doing pretty much exactly what I'm doing, but without having to sell tools and be yeah. completely unbiased and really helping teams so that's when that started so we, we already had some contacts in the industry and already had um, you know an idea of what we were going to do what we needed was a you know was a project to start on and that project scaled quite quickly so within within the first year of Eryfo we were like five or six people already Wow, um, uh, and yeah, we didn't realize how we were hand, handed a golden nugget right at the beginning because
0: <laughs> I thought everything was easy at that point. It was simple yeah, exactly. Objective.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then and then nothing like that ever really came along afterwards again. At least not as not as easily. And that was kind of a shock as well, coming from the employer perspective, because I think it was almost too easy that okay, you have you have a project, they have a need, you know, good people in your network or something. Or I just hire one of them. And then slowly it starts to dawn on you that that project won't last forever. Now that person's going to be off the project and it's kind of your responsibility. At least I I took it as my responsibility to then not just find me a project, but find them a project. And that that pressure was something I hadn't foreseen at the beginning. I guess the the lesson I learned now where we are today as a company is that um, everything's quite transparent within the company. We have things like open salary. Uh, we have all the, the the project rates and the hours that people spend on projects and all of the timesheets and things open in in a dashboard as well. So we can see every month what the hygiene of the company is. That are we working enough to be sustainable? Um, and the goal is ten percent profit. People are quite autonomous in making their own making their own decisions and also have a say in which projects they like to be involved with and which they wouldn't. And I think that that kind of um, maturity in the company then eases my burden a lot because people mm-hmm. take take it upon themselves almost to find projects to make sure they have good work and and ensuring the rates are good as well because everybody has an active interest in in
0: yeah
1: in the success of the company so
0: amazing so it's almost like a would you say like a b corp or a social enterprise in some ways as well
1: yeah i mean there, there are now these consultancies that are um, coming out like you're basically a freelancer uh, you, you get a minimal salary if you're not on a project. Um, but then if you're on a project, you get a, a cut of the of the the like the like amount you bill as well. Uh, and we explored this kind of models too, which is less like, okay, you're an employee here, uh, you, you know, just work and, <laughs> and have your salary versus, you know, you're kind of a freelancer. Uh, you get the benefits of being a freelancer without the risk. Um, and I, I think we're, I mean, we're somewhere in between, um, but there's no, there's no risk, you know, if you're off, if you're on the bench and you're off work, then, then you, you know, your salary is not affected. People know what everyone else's salaries are and what the competitive industry is. I don't know any other companies doing this. I only know of those sort of two, two models. So, uh, but I, I think it's, I think it's working it certainly creates more of a community within the company as well. And that, that was always a goal. I mean, we didn't want to be a, a an empty shell in a way that, you know, we have all these people working here, but they're off on their own projects and, you know, we're not a company ourselves. We really wanted to be our own company as well. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. More like a collective, really. Excellent. So that kind of also it seems to be the mission that you take into your work as well. So when you go to a company and do, for example, so you mentioned CICD. So typically you might go into a company and then what implement or help with process or how does that kind of look on a typical engagement?
1: Yeah, it varies a lot and it's changed a lot as well. In the early 2010s and, and sort of mid-2010s, I think CI was still this, you know, like challenge. <laughs> People would ask if you're doing CI and it really was a yes or no answer. Yeah. Uh, or like, yeah, you know, we, we, we've automated our builds. Um, um, because it was a challenge, you know, you needed to run your own tools. The ecosystem wasn't as well integrated. You couldn't just go on Stack Overflow or ask chat GPT, like <laughs> 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 write, write me a GitHub Action CI pipeline for my Node.js yeah. project or something, you know. Um, so it was it was really like a, a much bigger challenge then. So we we were I would say much more hands on with with setting up those things and and teams with it. And now nowadays I, I mean we're still really hands on, but I would say that the challenge is no longer so much of the the technical one, like picking a tool and creating you know writing a YAML file or whatever. It's more like you know how how does the team uh, get value from this. How do we build a process that helps bring value to the company? Uh, And it's usually not so much with the CI, the challenge then comes further downstream, but then you have, you know, massive automotive projects where you have like millions of lines of code and hugely complex build processes. And then, you know, you could have an entire team just trying to solve, (laughs) like optimizing CI and solving some of the challenges. And also it
0: depends how you define CI as well, because if you're like on the Dave Farley side where it's like, you really need to do this all the time, it needs to be fast as opposed to we can do it once a night overnight, once a day overnight kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe it's not always a one size fits all. It's not always, it's not always possible. Uh, should be a goal though. But it's not always, it's not always so, so straightforward. You know, you can't just have a Docker image with, with all the things you need in it.
0: Um, no, because that in itself is going to be a configuration headache to create. It's really kind of looking at a subset of what actually happens in the real world, because you end up with um, yeah, there is a piece of software at the middle of all your stuff, but then there is this huge configuration around it, which you have to take into account every time you want to test something. So that's when CI becomes so complicated because you end up with these. And this is again talking to Dave Farley, it's where I kind of agree about the end-to-end testing is almost meaningless, you know, because you have to you have to look at your stuff in kind of component size, but then at some point you've got to do it in a in a, in a context which works which works for you. And automating to that level is very tricky and takes a lot of time
1: yeah yeah absolutely i think my favorite catchphrase at the moment is just uh it depends i think this is a very interesting point as well that the mistake that i've made in my work so being a consultant and trying to help companies with with ci and better ways to deliver software uh, i don't want to couple ci and cd together too much because i I think they are different disciplines and everyone has a habit of saying ci cd but yeah for sake of clarity like like beyond ci um then then it's very easy to go and and do your research and do your reading and, and you know read some blog posts about how people did something you know amazing and it saved them so much time and the tooling they used or go to conferences and get seduced by all these new things then um you know i i was one of the people who came in and they were using tooling that i didn't agree with or ways of doing things that i didn't agree with or didn't think were you know the best so i you know i'd be there actively telling that if you want to be good you know you should be doing this and i just think back how i would do things differently today because because there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to you know the the best practice or or you know what's the what's the best way of, of of doing this um it's really going to depend on who you have in your team your team size the organization that you're part of as well because some things just might not be in in your control or even in your team's control or take so long to change so you have to you have to work with what you've got and 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 that's when it really it really depends um so coming in and trying to tell people how to be better at at what they are doing their day-to-day work is completely the wrong approach i mean it wasn't anything ludicrous you know Jenkins was the CI tool and people were using all kinds of weird stuff. And we were like, yeah, you should use Jenkins. I'm sure there's so many people who, who were doing the same thing back then.
0: Um, mm-hmm. And still are, you know, yeah, because yeah. it's difficult for a consultant coming in because you need to be seen like any, like a manager, for example, when they, when they start, you know, anyone who starts in a role, you want to have an impact, especially a manager, because you feel a bit paranoid about things. You want to, oh, let's change something for the sake of it. But for a consultant coming into a gig, you want to say, okay, we can change something and we can make an impact straight away. So making a noise and saying, let's change the tooling whatever. Is something that yeah I've defaulted to as well completely, and sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. What you realise when you get into the weeds of any decision like that is it's never as simple as that. Of course, as well, especially if it's a, a well-integrated tool or something that's people in other departments are depending upon. Um, and something I've found really, I don't know if you have you read team topologies at all?
1: Yeah, I have. I've done lots and lots of research around, and I'm I'm still in the process of reading it. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, there's a there's a bit in there. Well, there's a couple of things that sparked me when you were just talking there, around, yeah, the, the communication, because that's one thing that's very clear in team topologies is, is getting your team responsible for its own its own area of interest as much as possible so that they can actually release whenever they, they can do or have things within their control. But secondly, defining the interfaces, the communication interfaces between those teams particularly. And tooling is a big part of that, and that's what I've seen over and over again. There's Jira, for example, or any other um, project management slash agile tool gets in the way and has maybe been um, specialized or created in such a way that there's a a workflow or a template, which some people have kind of put together over a period of years. Very difficult to unpick the social technical kind of buzzword thing. But it's very true. The social technical side of software development is is really coming to the fore now. I think it's not a moment too soon.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And and one of the things that I love about reading the the beginning of team topologies anyway the first chapter where it covers this um, like the the architecture of teams and the the communication channels and also the architecture of software basically conway's law described in a really good way (laughs) And, and like proving it as well in some way using existing research and so on i i think that's really interesting because i always thought software architecture was you know like a technical more of a technical challenge but Um, that's really eye-opening to think that like sure when it comes down to it at the end it is a technical challenge but the the way those technical decisions are made are so heavily influenced by the way the organizations and the teams around us are structured as well and I think this applies a lot to to releasing software as well not just you know the software but the way like the way you are releasing software and I think where that 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 is going is is more on the the, the idea of platform engineering now. So platform engineering as a product almost within companies. Every software team is going to need this this stack of tools, and they're going to need to operate within this organization and within these um, ideas. If there's some compliance regulations and so on as well that the company have, then then not every team should need to reinvent the wheel.
0: But again, I'm, I'm I because yeah, platform engineering is very much the buzzword at the moment, isn't it? As well, like DevOps is dead. Platform engineering. I don't understand how. Platform engineering and DevOps have anything to do with each other? Essentially, I, I see. I, I don't know. I don't know how you see the definition or or understand it. Yeah,
1: but it's really interesting because uh, I have a I have a colleague who did for his master thesis the relationship between configuration management and DevOps because you know, he's he's really into config management at least. I think he is <laughs> not quite sure if it's a joke by now or not. Uh, but yeah, everyone's then saying that con- configuration management is dead, and it's it's the same thing. It's like no, it's not dead. All of the practices and all of the things that were part of configuration management now people just call you know DevOps, and to <laughs> yeah. to have called that uh, DevOps in the beginning was just wrong. Um, but it, it was sort of an easy an easy way because it needed a name and you know yeah. DevOps was this thing about bridging well, bridging teams and breaking down silos.
0: But why do we need a name all of a sudden? Is like now it's like of mode. But in the back in the day, you would just build tools because you needed good tools, you know. And I watched the John Romero talk a couple of weeks ago where he goes over his top ten programming tips or whatever, and he was one of them is tools are the most important thing that you can do to build to build good software you have to build your own tools basically and this is what we're kind of catching up with again now it's like idps or developer platforms things like backstage navigating all this stuff is getting more it's been complicated for 10 plus years already it's getting more and more complicated by the minute almost you know
1: yeah i think i think i um yeah, <laughs> it depends how many beers I've had. I'm just so I'm just so impartial to it now because you know it happens all the time. Like GitOps came out, and suddenly it was you know GitOps everything, and then people are like, "Well, what's wrong with CD?" There actually was a you know the, 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 there is something behind it. There is a, there is a subtle difference, or or like there is some something that GitOps is trying to encapsulate, which is primarily around you know the, the reconciliation. It's not just fire once and forget until next time, but more like reconciliation and state management and so on. Um, but I I feel like platform engineering it again is a is a buzzword, but the, there is something to it because w- what I have seen most DevOps teams or, or what would now be called platform engineering teams, it's a collection of tools. Um, they get asked to run tools that they use yeah. as part of the development stack, and um, Dave Farley's video on this as well to reference him again. He calls it designed by accident um so nobody really masterminded this platform it was more like okay here's some dudes uh we're gonna you know we're gonna run all of our stuff in in aws eks or whatever uh could be any platform and and here's some here's some tooling that we're gonna we're gonna run to support the the developers and 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 kind of like that's the platform yeah and i like that's yeah that's fine it's helpful but what i really like now about the direction this is taking and the reason why i I don't get so annoyed when i hear these buzzwords because i think there's more to it than that there is the developer experience on top of that and starting to look at these things with a product mindset really does help to to facilitate that um so things like onboarding and, and offboarding for users and and not just you know, here's here's the Kubernetes API, write some YAML, but maybe we should build a CLI because, or or use something from the crazy CNCF landscape that, you know, write your code, write some simple config, and, you know, we we know how you're going to run and deploy it because we own the platform. Maybe you don't even need to know that it's Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you just run the CLI, and then here's your dashboards, metrics, logging, you know, everything you need to access it and debug it.
0: Just to, to drill into that bit, um, a little bit. So how does that work? So if you say you have created this great platform for an development team or a team to build some, build a microservice or whatever service on it, yeah. when it comes to support, the kind of the you build it, you run it kind of thing, because that still apply if they don't understand what's going on under the covers in the platform?
1: I think it depends. Um, and <laughs> Again, it depends. <laughs> no, but um, one, of, one of the things that I think people often believe is that a platform needs to have one abstraction layer. it needs to have one api like you, you have one persona that you cater for and i think that's a wrong assumption um i think catering like if a platform team does extra work to cater for two people it means that or two personas it means that those two personas have less work to do and that's much more scalable that one central team does the upfront work so you could have the, the people who don't really need to learn and have some kind of like wrapper around it the information that it produces, like mm-hmm. um, logs, some kind of dashboard. Um, you know, ma- maybe once they visually see that there's pods and that there's a, a deployment and that there's, you know, different resources, you know, you don't need to know Kubernetes. You can see the the resources and, you know, you can see one is green and one is red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think having that abstraction layer for the typical people is good. And then if, why not have another abstraction layers for, for those snowflakes or the ones who... Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, we know what we're doing. Just give us access to the API. It's like, well, you don't need to use the same abstraction layer. No, I, I think getting that abstraction layer, uh, the API layer for the platform is such a difficult thing to do. as
0: well. Because I see, I've seen in various places that I've worked that with an experienced consultancy, <laughs> so you know what they're doing in Kubernetes land, fine. You can go in there, you could probably create this and you've done it before somewhere else. What I've seen typically up until now is that they're they're inventing an IDP or a developer platform or a platform for the first time and they're making mistakes as they go. So the the productization of that Kubernetes or whatever it is layer is not really there yet. So considering how fast things are moving in terms of it's like some developers still don't know what Docker is, you know, so, and that's fair, that's fine. You know, they shouldn't have to necessarily, but. I can't believe that anyone could consider configuration as a configuration management as a concept to be dead or even close to dying, because as far as I can see, it's only growing, you know, with all this stuff, because it's so vital to what we deliver these days. And that's, that's the natural hangover from having said goodbye to data centers, or at least having said goodbye to bare metal, essentially, since everything has become more software oriented, including networking, it's inevitable that software engineers, whoever they are in whatever way, shape or form are going to have more load pushed towards them. So, uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned um, productization there as well. I think that's really key is that we're really getting product thinking into what you used to be seen as more mundane engineering, everyday kind of stuff when it comes to building these things. So you need to be quite multidimensional to be able to, you know, not as a, like a alien, but you know what I mean? In terms of what you know, your experiences, but also what you hope to achieve through your, through your platform um, to deliver something which is meaningful. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make here is that, it can depend on the organisation how much effort you want to put in, how much money you want to spend to be able to get that platform up to a level where it's useful. Um, and I suppose that's playing out right now. I don't, there'll be winners and losers in that kind of world as well, too.
1: Yeah, and that, that like, I think I think getting that product mindset is—it's not difficult if you if you been building products before. Challenge is that most people haven't. Maybe been so involved in building a product, where you where you look more from use cases that we expect to to solve, and this is how we expect people to interact with the system. So, what's like the minimum thing that we need to do to fulfill this use case? Um, Usually, it's more like okay, we need these tools, so let's test all these tools and make sure these tools are all great, and then we'll kind of slap on the thin wrapper for the user at the end. And I think the this is what I was talking about with getting the abstraction layer to be good is um, and why it's 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 quite difficult as well because it's very use case driven you know how do you expect people to interact with it but once you define that abstraction once you start giving people a cli or giving them yaml or giving them you know something that they work with that's like an api now and changing that is gonna have a big effect on your user base so if you've chosen the wrong abstraction and they're almost too coupled with your with the system like specifically with tools that you're using in your in your stack as well. What if you want to change that tool and add something else? Now everybody's going to be affected, and you have to migrate everyone. I think it's very. I mean, it's not like it works every time. There's obviously going to be exceptions and so on. But generally, aiming aiming for that is a um, is something that often comes too late. Um, from yeah. from what I see.
0: And can it can it effectively be done as well? I suppose can you because you're kind of guessing, aren't you? I suppose when you when you build that abstraction in the first place that something else is going to come along in five minutes and and you want to add it and suddenly yeah i've got to rethink my architecture now and then suddenly you've got backwards compatibility problems potentially or whatever else i've not been involved in a like i suppose um a platform rollout from that perspective at this level like when it's productized i've seen what you what you've described before so i've seen it where it's just kind of like let's, let's just make it up as we go along and this will this will do and i've known that's to be acceptable, but then of course you're tightly coupled, as you say. So, is that wrong? Because then underlying that, you've got like, for example, a, for, yeah, for a concrete example, I worked uh, somewhere where there was there was a twin cloud strategy. If you call that a strategy at the time, um, so AWS and Azure, and the two platform teams there, you could call them, uh, um, went on very different strategies for their platforms towards their user base. So one was very focused around. Security and identity and access management, and almost had an intake with teams before they were allowed to use the platform. The second was very much self-service focused as well. So, when you were talking about personas or very different ways of looking at it, could, could could you be that flexible in a single platform, for example, or is that even too abstract to contemplate?
1: I mean, if you have a if you have a small, fairly small user base, and you know that they are very technically competent and let, let's say the platform is more solving the problem that and let's continue on the kubernetes bandwagon as mm-hmm. well um so let's say that they're very confident and capable with that but what we what the problem we're solving is that we don't want the teams to have to manage and maintain all their own kubernetes clusters mm-hmm. and you know getting a kubernetes cluster to production is not like you know gke create cluster it's like okay you're still going to want your monitoring and logging maybe you want your secrets management you probably want some networking in there. you know you're going to basically add a whole bunch of stuff there afterwards so um, maybe the platform is providing production ready kubernetes clusters as a service in which case the abstraction layer will be the kubernetes api for the most part and maybe that's fine but if you take a team who's maybe not so comfortable with using kubernetes and don't even want to care that their stuff is running in kubernetes then then you want to move that abstraction layer up right so and, and usually the bigger the company and the bigger the teams the general level of competence that you can assume does go down a little bit i mean if you have five people you need to hold their hands it's not going to take much time if you've got 500 people you need to hold their hands it's not a possibility so it's it's maybe not just the the level of competence but just the you know the, the scalability of it um
0: so that's where you'll balance your effort that you'll basically say yeah depending on the size of the organization and how many users we're going to be impacting then we can put more effort into it and spend time uh, accordingly i suppose
1: Exactly yeah and again it's not like you need the one abstraction layer you could always start with you know kubernetes as a as a service kind of thing um and then and then realize that oh but actually most of the teams using this um they don't need to they don't need all the low level details so let's just give them something like a cli or something that they can you know press the run button and put it up in ci or or use something like argo cd or something if you want to do gitops and and you know abstract away the the implementation of it but obviously not so far that they have no idea what's going on it's not just enabling to deploy but enabling to debug and to to upgrade to roll back to you know
0: indeed and that's fine for a greenfield system or systems that we're creating in you what about when you're interfacing with existing well you're going to be touching on legacy systems at some point as well how can you or can you integrate a delivery process around existing systems and see benefit i suppose or is it just going to slow things down
1: this is a really good segue into the reason how, how, how we got in contact as well, yes. which is which is which, which which is value stream mapping, because this is something that I really love to do with teams. Um, and for me, if I had to serve software development teams, if 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 there were software development teams already working today, and um, I was brought in to build some kind of internal developer platform, the first thing I would go and do is to go and run value stream mapping workshops with the with the different software teams.
0: So, how would you go about that then? How would you, yeah, engage with teams in the first instance?
1: Yeah, well, I'm not a guru in this area. Uh, I got introduced to value stream mapping by by colleagues that I work with. So, I'm just going to explain my view of value stream mapping first. So, it was from you know factory floors and how to optimize them. That's where it originated from, and it's been adapted to software. And I think most people still do it quite mathematically. That you know, we 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 it's a it's a flow a flow chart of how we go from some point to another point, uh, which is to describe how we, how we deliver value. Um, and, um, people put, you know, how much time they spend in each box and these sorts of things in it. we just do it very informally. Um, so we just ask teams that let's say we start from somewhere. I mean, ideally you have pretty large coverage, but if we're taking platform engineering, let's say we we could say that let's start from, you have a, a feature in your backlog. How how are you going to take that feature and put it into production, and also get feedback from production? That that could be a really good scope for a, a value stream mapping exercise. And then what what we do is I would ask the teams to to just start drawing with you know arrows and boxes, either on a whiteboard or you know in some online tool. So what do you do? Do you, do you create a branch? Do you start hacking coding? What about when you get to to use version control? and how's your merging process do you do trunk based or you know whatever um how's your ci what does that do once we've got the happy path because that's the usually the the easy one then let's start to focus on the edge cases like what happens if ci fails what happens if something in production fails and now we start to get you know the happy path value stream map is now starting to split and diverge and we start to see the daily struggles that exist with the pain yeah yeah but then we have some waste cards. We have eight categories of waste, things like manual work, handover, queue, uh, waiting. But usually we find that waste is part of one of those types. Um, and we ask people to annotate the, the value stream map. So where do you experience waste during this process? Um, and we might do some kind of prioritization there to find out which wastes are you know more severe than others. And we might talk about is this a symptom or a problem? Because um, some wastes are themselves the problem. And if we solve this, then, you know, we alleviate it. But a lot of the time, wastes are a symptom because mm-hmm. of some problem upstream or some waste upstream. And that's kind of like the, the deliverable in a way, in terms of a diagram, in terms of a value stream is just that, like, here's how you release software. Here's the waste. Here's all the, you know, the edge cases and things. and And now we can have a really good constructive conversation about how to improve. Because we no longer need to motivate people to change.
0: Yeah, indeed. But do you find often you also get stuck in the weeds of potentially the backlog as well? So maybe you look at the the existing backlog and say there are some smells here, for example, that we've got technical debt or we can't deliver X, Y, and Z, and this that can feed into the value value stream mapping at all uh, as well. Sorry, or would you just kind of ignore that and just take a complete fresh piece of paper?
1: Um. I mean value stream mapping is the is the is the process, right? And 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 if we have once we're drawing out this thing, you know, feature to production, there might be uh like I'm writing code and suddenly I get distracted and people put a waste there. Like, you know, I get I get distracted all the time or there's there's things unplanned. Unplanned was one of the other waste cards that we had. Okay. Um and if, you know, five people say they're like, Yeah, you know, this unplanned work that always comes up, then we might to think start to think that the problem is upstream in the value stream right probably more of the you know things on the backlog and the actual planning for the for the, for the release cycle or the sprint or whatever you're doing maybe wasn't done that well or there's nobody protecting you <laughs> from like Well, indeed, that's,
0: that's one, one point i was keen to look yeah. at as well so what if it's a cultural problem i suppose like if the company itself is used to working in a certain way and you identify this through value stream mapping. So, well, basically, you're getting interrupted all the time by the boss saying, you need to fix this for our top customer. How do you approach that? I mean, again, it's going to say, I know you're going to say it depends, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's sometimes not, not purely a technical thing. In fact, probably I would say a lot of the time it's, it's non-technical in nature.
1: Yeah, there's a really great um, book that we got introduced to by colleagues as well. And it's now a mandatory read in, internally, which is called Getting Naked it's a novel a business fable as they call it about two consultancy companies and uh, the the different styles when consulting and you know the good the good consultancy i won't ruin it but one of the things there is about um taking a bullet for the for the team as well that um, if you're scared of losing your, your work or your contract or whatever because of what you say and what you do, then, then, then you're not, you're not getting naked. Um, if you're naked, then you, you will be the one to, to stand up and take a bullet and maybe say the things that are a bit awkward and emotionally challenging. Gotcha. Um, and I, I, I feel like if, if we've done a value stream mapping with teams and the, this waste that we're talking about which is caused by you know cultural or management or whatever if that's a valid thing that many people have talked about then i feel like i'd have enough grounds to stand on to make a point if i need to i mean it might be that the manager is in the room and he's like whoa like (laughs) is is this the effect i have on you uh i mean that's a very likely scenario um um because it, it it puts these these things out there um yeah in
0: the open, so. Wow. I'm definitely going to read that book. we will link that as well in the notes. Um, that's, so, okay, so just to maybe wrap this up a bit, we, we originally met and talked about, well, I found your website, found the the Verifer website via a search about continuous delivery, and I got into the value stream mapping. I read that from your website as well, um, and I was kind of going through a funk at the time where I was like, continuous delivery is seen as a, again, as a hammer. So, How do you get to a point where you realize that you're doing enough? Um, And I suppose I'm kind of pushing you in the direction of how do we know that we're doing a good job? How do we know that we're doing enough of a good job?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really, uh, I like, I like these questions. um, Because usually with continuous delivery, I mean, you're always going to be able to get better. Uh, it's there is there is no end game Um, I think I wrote in that blog post something like there is no end game and time is finite because I mean that's that's the challenge right Um, there's always something you could change and always something you can do but how do you know if that's going to be positive and how do you know if you even if you even need to Um, but I think every like I, I think we'd be foolish to not not be aware or not think that there's something we can always improve on so really it's it's about having some justification as to like, like a business case that we want to change this because it's going to solve and help with this. And this is, you know, roughly how much it's going to take or how much time it's going to cost. I mean, it depends where you work, how much justification is, is really needed, but I feel like for the justification, um, value streams are very good because they produce this data for you. Um, they, they basically tell you this, they're like, You know there's so much waste here in the process we want to fix this um let us let us fix this here's what we're going to save if you really need more of a breakdown into this we you know we we can do that for you but it should be very clear that there's a lot of like a lot of a lot of waste in the process yeah and you talked about um are you good enough or, or 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 so on and i know we've spoken before about the about the dora metrics as well and i i feel like that's you know like that's a good benchmark in a way i mean the dora metrics are good i wouldn't bother creating my own metrics just for the sake of having my own metrics i would just use the dora metrics because Mm -hmm. they are they are well thought out they're difficult to cheat and there are like (laughs) industry benchmarks that are updated every year whether you're an elite performer or so on would i would i use that to say we need to get better or not probably not no (laughs) i'd use that more of a you know like in, in an interesting thing. The benchmark, I mean I mean I'd use the Dora metrics to, to measure do we get better. I wouldn't use the Dora metrics to say do we need to get better necessarily. Yeah. I would know that if, if our business is very volatile and maybe we're quite young and you know we need the product market fit and these sorts of things, then I would know that our key goals would be for changeability and, and adaptability and so on. So I might try and optimize our value stream towards those. Whereas if if I'm in a very well established company, very trusted and so on, um, then I would probably optimize. I mean you can't get stability without throughput and so on, but you know, I'd still optimize less for, you know, next week we might be doing something totally different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no. Yeah. <laughs> let's, you know, like let's let's maybe fine tune this value stream as it is today and and optimize it generally rather than, you know,
0: um yeah. Well, that's really interesting. The way you put it is like the value stream, after you've done the initial analysis, it sounds like it has to live as a product at that point. You have to kind of say, well, this is our the vision of that we have for our process, and this has to be reviewed. So how do you then I mean I've got a couple of points actually I want to bring up the first one is when we talk about business case, it's almost like um for, for doing more C D, it's almost like I've seen a lot of backlogs where technical debt. For, it'll be, be lumped under technical debt. Oh, we need to do faster CI, or this is failing, or we've got read, too many broken tests, etc. That kind of stuff. And it's lumped into technical debt. And maybe at the end of, uh, I don't know, if it's a, if it's safe, there'll be a, P, a PI, there'll be um, a sprint at the end to be able to do that. Or maybe it'll be, they will have a sprint where we'll reduce it. Te- you know what? That, that's the kind of reactive approach that we do see typically in a lot of companies. Whereas I think what you're mentioning or or maybe painting a picture of here is more like thinking about this as a living thing that we need to live with alongside all the software that delivering as well. So our value stream of our delivery process needs to be a living thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, that's nice. That's a nice way of, of thinking about it. The the value stream that we you know, the, the, the diagram, the exercise that we do, it creates a snapshot, right? It's a it's a snapshot in time. Yeah. Um I I don't think it's super valuable if, you know, there's and and I've heard this from teams as well, like, yeah, we drew a value stream, you know, me and me and Bob over there, we got together and drew a value stream, but it didn't really help us. And I'm like, well of course it didn't really help you. Like, <laughs> that's just your two opinions of how you're releasing software. Um, a value stream needs to be, it's not just the diagram that's the value it's the process of creating it yeah. the process of getting people to talk the process of you know that involvement with the team that that to me is the real value I, I don't really care about the diagram at the end I mean I care about the diagram because I usually need to write reports and things afterwards <laughs> so for me it's more like triggering my memory of, of, course. of,
0: of yeah what but then is what happens with the reports and what happens next is, is the vital part isn't it
1: Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, these, these having, having um, backlog items to clean up technical debt or to do whatever, I mean, I mean, sure, everybody knows it needs to be done, but how urgent is it? Um, Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to prioritize those things and to know what, what, what should be done. Um, But if we, if we, if we can somehow relate this back to the waste in the value stream and the, the pain that people have raised, you know, it gives us really good grounds to make good decisions on. Yeah. I mean, okay, so we have, we have smells in our code base. I love this tool called code scene, by the way, because it, it kind of does this. And, and uh, Adam Tornhill. um, is really in, like inspirational guy as well, because everyone thinks that like code smells are, are bad. Well, if your code doesn't change, then, then why are you cleaning up all these code smells, but the parts of the code base that are changing all the time. Maybe these code smells do have a negative yeah. effect on it, and yeah. I think these kind of like this this context aware it depends uh, <laughs> stuff is really important too. I mean, you, your code base could be like you could have some really old code base or part of the code base and really bad quality or whatever, and you do a value stream and nobody mentions it you know like there's not a single waste to say that this horrible part of the code is a problem because maybe it doesn't change maybe it doesn't affect anyone so should you then start cleaning up these backlog technical debt issues for that code base well probably that's not a good use of time yeah um or it might be you know the complete opposite they're like you know we just realized that like the three major wastes in our value stream mapping are related to the bad quality of this code base you know various symptoms now we know we really need to clean this up, and it's going to help us tremendously. So I think that that knowledge of knowing where to invest and what to do is going to give you, you know, it's going to give you that 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 yes. decision for you.
0: Brilliant. No, I think we're kind of tying it all up a little bit as well. You know, it would be lovely if we could prioritize improving our delivery process all the time, but we live in the real world. But that isn't always the case. So more often yeah. than not, it is a project, or it's a. An initiative, you know. So you might be brought on board to to draw a value stream map, and then six months down the line, we want to see progress. So how do we know that? And I presume Dora Metrics there would help you.
1: Yeah, I mean, you would hope, right, that that um, you do value stream mapping and start implementing change, basically in investing in performance. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you'd hope to see some positive effects from that, and I think you will in the Dora Metrics because. The Dora metrics aren't goals. I mean, they don't tell you what to do. It's not like, oh, our, our lead time is high. Uh, let's fix that. It's like, yeah, but how are you going to fix that? <laughs> it doesn't doesn't tell you how to go about doing that. But maybe all the things that come up from Value Stream Mapping will help yeah. you help yeah. reduce your reduce your cycle time and improve your lead times. Uh, I mean, yeah, you'd hope to see some positive effect, and and I'm quite confident the Dora metrics would be a good measure of that.
0: And we wrapped up things there. Although we carried on talking for quite a lot longer than that, we touched on many items in the discussion, some of which we may have to revisit in time. If you enjoyed the show today, please like us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you consume your podcasts, and please also subscribe. It helps me keep doing what I'm doing. Until next time, this is Richard Baum wishing you goodbye and good luck.